What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? Do you know that romance writer Barbara Cartland? Yeah. Well, uh, did you know she put out a cookbook in the 1980s? It's called The Romance of Food, and it is amazing. I found it from that wonderful site, Messy Nessie, and, and it's basically all these so-called romantic meals photographed in the most surreal way. Like, they're bright, technicolor backgrounds, and each dish is surrounded by Barbara's kitschy porcelain dolls and figurines. I, I guess it's all weird stuff she had around her house. It is so creepy. And are these her recipes or what? I guess they were her personal chefs, but here, take a look at this. Aren't those pictures ridiculous? Yeah, uh, they are. And she wrote these sultry descriptions for each meal. So here's her pitch for lamb with baby vegetables. Quote, what woman does not long to be carried like a lamb in the arms of the man she loves? <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying that for years. <laughs> and here's her description for special strawberry ice cream. Quote, as Eve found in the Garden of Eden... Fruit is an exciting temptation. <laughs> Such a naughty cookbook. That's ridiculous. I know, but, uh, but reading about Barbara Cartland's cookbook made me wonder, what are the other super strange cookbooks out there? What's the oldest cookbook on record? And how do celebrity chefs pump out so many cookbooks every year? So those are some of the big questions we'll be tackling. Why don't we dive in? Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And sitting behind that soundproof glass, bragging about his brand new George Foreman grill is our producer, <laughs> Tristan McNeil. What are we on, like hour two of bragging now? <laughs> I know. It's a good grill. We get it, Tristan. It's very functional. Very functional. And I know we could sit here and keep complimenting Tristan's grill forever, and we'll do more <laughs> of that after we finish this episode. But, but let's talk cookbooks. 
So cookbooks are so prevalent in our lives. I mean, there's something you don't really think to contemplate, but you know what's strange? They're essentially these instruction manuals for how to use food. <laughs> I mean, that's such a weird way to put it. But I guess you're right. I mean, I, I feel like if an alien came to Earth, that's how they'd refer to them, like food instruction manuals. But that's actually part of what's so interesting about cookbooks, right? I mean, they're basically these documents of how we eat or at least how we want to eat. Yeah, and, and also how we used to eat. I mean, I think we should get into this a little bit later because it's fascinating to look at how cookbooks from you know, like imperialist Russia talk about households in a very different way than cookbooks that came out from maybe like the Great Depression. And even how we write recipes changes from era to era. So how do you mean? Well, I was reading this article from The Economist about how cookbooks have evolved and transformed with the times. In the 1600s, a British cookbook advised cooks to, quote, heat water until it was a little hotter than milk that comes from a cow. <laughs> and those weren't vague directions. I mean, they're very specific. So essentially any cook or kitchen hand at the time would have some knowledge of farm life. So a little hotter than milk as it comes out of the cow's udder meant a specific temperature to most that's people. That's so weird. Yeah, and, and, and that's how recipes were written until the Industrial Revolution a couple hundred years later, you know, when people were separated from their rural roots. That's pretty crazy. So I, I know you and your family enjoy cooking, but I can't remember. Do you have a lot of cookbooks around? There's definitely a few that we use frequently and then way too many that just kind of sit there on the shelves. But what about you guys? Are you big cookbook users? Yeah, well, we're the same way. Like we used to live in a small apartment with too many cookbooks. And after we Marie Kondoed the place, we only <laughs> kept the essentials. But I mean, I, I do like to cook and, and I'm a sucker for beautiful cookbooks. Like I, I have this Jerusalem cookbook that I use a lot and this old uh, Mark Bittman cookbook that's really warm. But mostly cookbooks are aspirational for me. I, I kind of like just having them around. And and why is that? Are, like, are the recipes too hard or just intimidating or what? Yeah, I mean, it's a little of that. And as much as I like things like the Momofuku cookbook or whatever, I mean, I'm not going to cold smoke wings and make ramen unless it's a really special occasion, especially since we have ramen downstairs. Right, right. But, I mean... It's kind of the same way I think about foreign films and how they sit on my Netflix queue. Like, I totally intend to use these books and make all these recipes when I have time and the mood strikes. But mm -hmm. instead, I just make nachos and watch old 30 Rocks. Every single night, <laughs> nachos and 30 Rocks. That's my <laughs> life. Yeah. Well, there's, there's definitely an aspirational aspect to cookbooks. But you know what's funny? I feel like I see new cookbooks everywhere now. And you remember back around 2010 and tablets had just come out, that was supposed to be one of the things that was going to die with this invention of tablets mm -hmm. and such that they would go away. Yeah. But I mean, if vinyl records can make a comeback, I guess anything can. Yeah. I, I actually found some articles from around that same time period. And, and the book industry was really worried, apparently. Like editors stopped making as many acquisitions. But, but then it turned out people really wanted their cookbooks in dead tree form. And of course... Food appreciation went through this all-time high, you know, that there's that farm-to-table movement that took off and mm -hmm. Instagramming your food and the popularity of food shows. I, actually, I, I think I might have already told you this, but last summer, we took our kids to this Italian restaurant. And my son, who was five then, had actually eaten nicely and behaved, which is kind of a rarity. <laughs> so we said to him, if you'd like, you can have a slice of cake for dessert. And he just looked at me and said, is it a walnut cake? <laughs> I was honestly so confused. Like, I didn't even know walnut cake was a thing. I didn't either. But apparently he'd been sneaking off and watching The Great British Bake Off on our iPad, just on the sly. And uh, he really got into the show and, and then into baking and cooking. And 
he had very specific demands for what he'd eat for dessert. <laughs> I'm glad that that's what he was sneak off and watching rather than the uh, Barbara Cartland uh, <laughs> show. But, uh, well, clearly people of all ages have been inspired by TV shows and this greater food movement that you were talking about. But why don't we get back to the cookbooks? And, and, and I want to get some of the early cookbooks in the conversation. Uh, of course, I want to talk about some of the really important ones that have shaped American cooking. But why don't we warm up by listing, you know, maybe the strangest cookbook that each of us found, uh, other than the Barbara Cartland one you started the show with? <laughs> well, I'm up for it. Well, what do you find? Well, it, it's hard to choose what would be the weirdest. I mean, there there are some weird ones like the Star Trek cookbooks and the the one that I think is just hilarious, Cooking with Coolio <laughs> and things like that. But the but the one that really stuck with me is called Last Dinner on the Titanic. And that's a real cookbook. Yeah, and it's meticulously researched and based off of real recipes, including the 10-course meals served in first class. It's a beautiful book, too, but as Bon Appetit puts it in their review, quote, your inner history buff will be sated, but you may never be able to look at lobster thermidor the same again. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I have only one look for lobster thermidor, <laughs> but I love that. I mean, to, to me, the Titanic cookbook feels like the perfect book for a book club. Like, if I was in a book club or a cookbook club, that'd be my first suggestion. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, so what's your pick for weirdest cookbook? Well, there are obviously a lot of funny cookbooks out there. I, I, I've got a list here. Um, there's Reason Mommy Drinks. There's a Original Roadkill Cookbook, which shouldn't be confused with all the imposter roadkill cookbooks out there. Right. But, but, but the craziest cookbook I found was Cooking with a Serial Killer. Ha, have you heard of this? I have not. What, what is that? <laughs> so this woman, Dorothea Puente, was a serial killer who also ran a boarding house. Uh, apparently, she worked her way up in crime. She started by running a brothel, then she started forging checks, and eventually she ran this boarding house where she murdered the elder tenants so she could cash in on their social security. God. And she buried them in her basement, and then with each body, she put a new layer of concrete floor over the bodies. It was super elaborate. I could say she worked her way up, like she she forged her signature on checks, and then, oh yeah, she became a serial <laughs> killer, but that, that's terrible. Yeah, but but she also kept her tenants well-fed, and and the weird thing is, one, that she has a book of recipes out, right? I mean, it came out in 2004, and, and it was basically through her correspondence with a writer. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the, the Food Network actually reviewed the thing and said, quote, the biggest surprise of this Are You Freaking Kidding Us cookbook is the recipes are actually pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's a good lesson for anyone trying to stereotype serial killers. Killing isn't their only hobby, you guys. They have other hobbies, too. <laughs> Multi-talented. Well... All right, well, let's take this back to the beginning for a second and, and maybe talk about some of the ancient cookbooks. Definitely. So I, I know you looked into some of the early stuff, but what's the earliest cookbook you found? Well, the first cookbook we know of is, is just three tablets long. That's tablets long. And, and so it's way back from 1700 BCE, and it's known as the Yale Culinary Tablets. And it's, it's part of Yale's Babylonian collection, and the writing, it's actually all in cuneiform. So what food recipes are on there? Like, have academics actually been able to decipher it? Well, apparently it's like 25 recipes for stew, I think. <laughs> but it's supposed to be very fancy stews, like the, the kind that were fit for Mesopotamian kings. So it, it may be better than it sounds. And But they're actually not real clear directions or quantities listed on the tablets. It's just mainly just a list of ingredients. So basically, they're really old shopping lists for students. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I mean, 1700 BCE is far older than I imagined for the first cookbook, but where's it go from there? Well, the best-known ancient cookbook is probably Apicius, and it's nicknamed for the gourmand who, who used the number of the recipes, and it's from the 4th century. And 
it has another title that translate as the art of cooking or more literally like maybe like concerning cookery but hmm. for being the first real western cookbook it's it's actually pretty organized so there are 10 chapters including a section on ingredients one on the sea one on the careful housekeeper apparently and <laughs> I've only read about it, but it definitely gives us a window into what the upper classes used to eat. So what was that? It appears to be really gamey birds like <laughs> ostrich and flamingo. And more than cooking, it seems like a lot of cooking tricks, you know, for masking how bad these birds smell. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and it's gross to think about, but it, it makes sense when you think about it. And according to the cookbook, you can smother their smell with very, very, very heavy sauces. <laughs> As The Economist pointed out, quote, one recipe explains that stale birds should be cooked in a sauce of pepper, lovage, thyme, mint, hazelnuts, date, honey, vinegar, fish sauce, wine, and mustard. <laughs> Through that concoction, it would be impossible to detect the stale smell or indeed any smell at all. Like, actually, <laughs> I can't imagine what that concoction itself would have smelled like. But... I know, mint, dates, vinegar, and fish sauce together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't pair well. Also, I see that Apicius added honey to everything. He used to add <laughs> honey to lobster even. But, I mean, is stale flamingo coated in a strong sauce good? I mean, it can't be, right? And, <laughs> and, and actually, according to the people who've tried to recreate it, they, they say it's not that good either. The, the best that's been described, I saw one that just said, interesting. <laughs> you know, that the heavy-duty sauce does seem to live up to its reputation and mask any meat you put it on. And so that I guess that part is good. But there's some other old cookbooks that get talked about a lot. There's one from China from the 1300s that features an early version of Peking Duck. One from 1390 that King Richard II's master cook assembled. It's called the Form of Curry uh, or Forms of Cooking in Modern English. It has 205 recipes and mixes spices, you know, like cardamom and nutmeg and ginger with meats you probably haven't eaten. I mean, it, it's kind of wild to read about some of these cranes, heron, whale. But the thing I kept reading about all these cookbooks is, is how much plagiarism there were in the recipes. Oh, that's weird. So uh, why is that? Well, even Apicius's recipes were clearly lifted from Greek and Roman foods, and it was a mix of styles. But the easiest ways to spot the plagiarism is in the mistranslations. So according to writer Mary Evans, there was a book printed in 1596 and advised the cook in one recipe to add three or four dates. By 1653, when the recipe was pinched by the author of A Book of Fruits and Flowers, the cook was told to set the dish aside for three or four days. You can see how the mistranslation happened over time. Yeah, that's funny. But uh, why don't we hit pause for a sec and then get into some of America's favorite cookbooks after the break. So, Mango, we've got a special guest on the program today. We've actually got the co-editor of Leave Me Alone with the Recipes, Sarah Rich on. Sarah, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. Today's show is all about cookbooks, and when I stumbled into this book, which is co-edited with the incredible illustrator, Wendy McNaughton, I just couldn't believe how beautiful the book is. It has this great origin story, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the origin story of the book is that about four years ago, um, Wendy and I, we both live in the Bay Area, and we went to the San Francisco Antiquarian Book Fair, just kind of on a whim, and um, Wendy beat me there and she was walking around and um, spotted this sketchbook sitting in a in a glass case like propped open to um, a painting of borscht um, and she was just really drawn to it it felt familiar and it felt very um, 
current, and it sort of was reminiscent of Myra Coleman's work, um, who, of course, is very well known and a little bit like Wendy's work herself and other illustrators working today. And so she had the bookseller pull it out of the case, and when she looked more closely at it, realized that she was looking at an original manuscript, a, a sketchbook um, with actual original gouache paintings in it, and it had dozens of paintings, and all the paintings were of recipes that had been hand-lettered with a quill and hand-painted. Um, and so she called me, and I was like on my way across the bridge from Oakland and said, you know, hurry up, you have to get here and see this thing. Um, and so when I arrived and looked at it, you know, I was also totally struck by the by the art. It's just so brilliant and has so much voice and character and color. Um, but also for me, it was, these recipes are... Um, you know, very traditional Eastern European Jewish recipes, which is the food of my own family. Um, And so as I looked through it, I felt struck by the fact that not only did I know this food, um, but it's not really the kind of food that you find rendered in such a kind of celebratory, lively, um, exciting way, you know? I know. The the fact that you start with a borscht recipe is amazing. (laughs) Like, that's what drew you in is, is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in, you know, it's in the, a lot of foods that, you know, having grown up with them and they go back generations in my family, you know, it's kind of, it's not the food you think of as necessarily being the most exciting food. It's the food you think of as being the most sort of comforting and nostalgic. But um, she had created this celebration of this food, which was so cool to see. Um, so we ended up um, signing out from the bookseller. We had never heard of her. We the, the bookseller said, "Oh yeah, it was done. It was done in, the, in 1945 by a woman named C.P. Pinellas. and we didn't know who she was. And you know, so they're googling on our phones um, to discover that she, although there wasn't too much available online about her, um, she has a little Wikipedia entry, and uh, we learned that she was the first female art director at Condé Nast." Um, and so then discovered that she had this massive influence on art direction and publishing and graphic design in uh, in the mid-century and was a really important figure. And we were both shocked we hadn't heard of her because, you know, she kind of touches the convergence of our two professions. She worked in, in publishing and editorial and, um, and was an illustrator. And neither of us had heard of her. And so these paintings had never been published. They'd been sitting in her estate for almost 70 years. And we decided we had to get the book and figure out a way to publish um, the recipes and also tell her story. Um, So we called up Maria Popova and Debbie Millman, who um, we thought would be interested in it because both of them have an interest in history and culture and design. And and we asked them if they would want to go in on it because it was a purchase, you know, it was was an art purchase, um, an antique really. So, uh, so we couldn't afford it on our own. The four of us pulled our resources and uh, and bought it, and then you know took it and put it into a fireproof safe in Wendy's house, and uh, and and set out to figure out what to do next. Yeah, it really is crazy to me how fresh these illustrations feel. Like I, I remember, like six or seven years ago, we were trying to commission illustrations that looked like this because they felt like novel at, at the time. And and uh, it's amazing to me that. You know, we've we've looked at magazine histories before, and you know, sort of the luminaries along the way. But the fact that CP existed and Andy Warhol loved her, and like I don't know her name, is just crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, she should be better known. I mean, she just should. You know, she um, one of kind of the, the biggest influence she had as far as um, steering the direction that publishing and design went is that she. Um, 
she was one of the first people to start working with artists for magazines in a way that really was collaborative and responded to the artists in a way that invited their, you know, invited their input and their own response. So rather than, you know, if she needed to do a story about a, you know, a loaf of bread, instead of calling an artist and saying, I have a story about a loaf of bread, will you draw a loaf of bread? It was, I have a story, I want you to read it, and then tell me after you've read it what your thoughts are on how to put visuals to it, you know, and, and, and it was more of an invitation and a collaboration, and that was how she did work with Andy Warhol, who was doing a lot of, um, he did a lot of food illustration early in his career. Well, and, and a big portion of this book is, is, is your revision of her recipes. I'm curious how intimidating that was to try to tweak her recipes for a, for a modern age. Yeah, it was, it was intimidating, I guess, or it was more, it was more of kind of like a, um, strategic challenge because the, I mean, there was the first challenge, which is simply that the recipes as she wrote them, when you follow them from start to finish, don't necessarily yield what they are promising you, <laughs> um, you know, which is most likely because she, the, the book, her original credits her mother as the author and herself as the illustrator. So these are her mother's recipes definitely passed to her directly from her mother and you know, who knows exactly how she recorded them, if she was standing next to her in the kitchen trying to write it down as best she could or if her mother told her from her head. But most likely her mother didn't sit and meticulously measure things out. And so, um, you know, these recipes, some of them hold up uh, just as a set of instructions. Others really don't. And so my first challenge was just to make them work, you know, so that you could follow one, one two, three, and at the end you'd have the thing that you thought you were going to get. And then the second challenge, the bigger challenge, was to say, okay, you know, how do we make these feel a little bit more modern? How do we make sure the ingredients are ingredients that people are using right now? Um, you know, there are things in there like parsley root, which I had never used or seen, although I was able to find it. But, um, you know, I didn't want to include ingredients that would be really un unusual in supermarkets today. Um, and then I didn't want to make them so modern that they departed from the tradition. So, um I worked with a recipe development assistant who is a, a sous chef here at Zuni Cafe, which is very, you know, mm -hmm. modern or contemporary California food. So he t he had, you know, we would both kind of try the original and then come together and brainstorm about what we could do with it. And he would be further out along the spectrum of making it more modern and edgy and kind of bringing in ingredients from lots of other um, places. And um, and then we'd try to find a middle ground where it where it still felt true to what it had been. And I think for the most part we did that, and, and they vary. You know, some of them are really close to the original, like the chicken soup I thought was fantastic, almost exactly as she had it. Um, and then some of the other ones, like the lamb stew, you know, kind of invites, like, Moroccan flavors, because that's something you find a lot now with lamb, which she wouldn't have done, but um, makes it taste great. <laughs> Well, for our listeners, if you haven't checked out Leave Me Alone with the Recipes by C.P. Pinellas, go out and buy a copy today. It's definitely a book that belongs on more bookshelves. But Sarah Rich, thanks so much for joining us today on Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. 
Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. We're talking about cookbooks. Now, I know we were going to be talking about some of the great American books, but before we do, let's talk for a couple of minutes maybe about celebrity chefs and just how they crank out so many books. Yeah, I'm curious about this. Well, if you look at the big chefs with publishing empires and, and the publishing schedules they're on, some of them have magazine columns with thousands of recipes. Some of them put out a new book every year. It's just impossible for most people to produce at that volume. And that's where the cookbook ghostwriter comes in. I mean, it makes sense to me that some celebrities wouldn't write their own cookbooks, right? Like, I, I don't expect Barbara Cartland to have experimented with that much in the kitchen. But if these are big TV chefs, I, I feel kind of cheated. Yeah, I know. But, you know, as the New York Times did a story on it, and as one ghostwriter for Rachel Ray put it, how many times can one person invent a new quick pasta dish? Which, <laughs> which makes sense. Plus, you know, where chefs could work on one volume of beautiful text once upon a time, and that could be their life's work. Now the pressure on celebrity chefs is completely different. I mean, they're all supposed to have special degrees and make appearances on cruises and on talk shows and have their own weekly shows, all while operating a kitchen. And it's actually just impossible. Mm -hmm. So so often these ghostwriters are really creative cooks who understand how to distill someone's style and philosophy into these delicious recipes, but can also write. And, and the stories are kind of funny. So there was there was one writer that said the number of times they've seen chefs tear up reading the introductions to their own books, that <laughs> that was how they marked their success. And another commented that while these books often start as a labor of love from the chef, they don't have time and, quote, dissolution is part of the job. In every book, there's a point where you just can't stand the sight of each other. So it isn't always pleasant and it can be like dating, like you, you want to see that you fit before you commit to anything long term. But it actually does pay pretty well. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You, you know, now that you mention it, I met this entrepreneur who had a candy company. It was this taffy that, that was supposed to be better for your teeth and his wife was a dentist. But the interesting thing to me was I asked him, how do you make a candy? And he told me that you can strike deals with chefs to come up with food recipes for you. Like he found this junior chef from a big deal restaurant in New York and and asked him to play with the sugar substitute he had. And he wrote him three or four recipes for not that much money. Hmm. But speaking of unsung cookbook authors, let's get into some of the biggies in American history. Yeah, let's do it. So let, let's do a little quiz here. What, what do you think is the best selling cookbook in the U.S.? Uh, I don't know, maybe The Joy of Cooking. Yeah, that, that would have been my guess, too. And it's in the top three. It sold about 18 million copies. All right. Well, what about uh, what's the Julia Child one calls it? The the, uh, the Art of French Cooking. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. But that isn't it either. Oh, I thought I'd gotten it. All right. <laughs> so I, I, I give up. What, what is it? Yeah, it, it's actually Betty Crocker's Cookbook, which has sold approximately 65 million copies. Oh, wow. I mean, it came out in 1950 and sales actually rivaled those of the Bible. 
according to the Daily Meal, it, it sold 2 million copies in its first two years. And of course, Betty Crocker is this fictional marketing character. So it's a little strange that America trusted her instincts. But before <laughs> we talk about that, I, I do want to talk about the book that sold the second best in the U.S. And it, this preceded the Betty Crocker book by about 20 years. And that's the Better Homes and Gardens new cookbook, which came out in 1930. That sold about 40 million copies, and it was revolutionary for a few reasons. My mother-in-law is going to be so disappointed in me because we actually have two copies of this. I should have guessed that one. Yeah. So so why was it so revolutionary? Well, Well, one of the really simple reasons was that it was one of the first cookbooks with ring binding. Like, the major advantage was that you could lay it out flat on your countertops. Oh, yeah. And at the time, this was a totally new technology, so it felt kind of modern. And also, the book had these little tab dividers. So when it was closed, it looked like a little filing cabinet of recipes. And there were blank pages at the back for notes, and so you could make your comments on your recipes. Like, mm-hmm. none of this had been done before. It was all these gimmicks that emphasized its usefulness. I miss an age where tab dividers were revolutionary. <laughs> but and, and but the thing is, like, the recipes are really good. Yeah, they are. And, and the Better Homes cookbook was one of the first to emphasize that they'd actually tested thousands of recipes in a test kitchen. And they were only bringing you the creme de la creme. Plus, it was really instructional. So uh, according to Better Homes' own site, quote, In many books at the time, a recipe for a currant pie might have read something like this. Add one cup of raspberries to three cups of ripe currants and bake in two crusts. Serve plain or with whipped cream. So most writers assume that you know how to prepare the fruit, how to make a crust, how long to bake the thing, how to add three-fourths cup of sugar to sweeten the filling or like a little flour to thicken it. So this was way more instructive and really taught you how to cook. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that's definitely interesting. And, you know, just to be clear, Better Homes wasn't the first one to use more accurate measurements. Like French chefs had been working to codify French cuisine since the late 1800s and early 1900s. And uh, this woman, Fanny Farmer, she'd headed the uh, Boston cooking school. She did the same for the U.S. in the 1890s. Apparently, she was like super finicky about ingredients. And she claimed that currants could only be picked between... Uh, June 28th and July 3rd, but not when it's raining. And uh, on the other hand, she wrote with the precision of like chemistry experiments. And she's the reason we use like proper measurements instead of saying things like a slab of butter the size of an egg or a level teacup of sugar. Now, I know The Joy of Cooking came out around the same time as the Better Homes book. But Mm -hmm. before we talk about The Joy of Cooking, why don't we talk about the Betty Crocker book that you mentioned? So, So why was it America's top selling cookbook? Yeah, Joy of Cooking could have been its own episode, but we can chat about that a little later. The Betty Crocker Picture Cookbook, it's baffling to me how it got so popular. I didn't really know the origin of Betty Crocker. Uh, Apparently, it all started in 1921 when this flower company, it's called uh, Gold Metal Flower, they put out a puzzle and had customers fill it out and mail it back for like a free pincushion. And the company didn't think a pincushion prize would be that popular, especially since it was just shaped like a tiny bag of gold metal flour. But, you know, the the puzzles poured in. Apparently 30,000 completed puzzles came in. Mm -hmm. And even more surprising than all these entries was the fact that they were accompanied by so many letters all asking baking questions and listing out, like, their concerns. And at the time, it was all up to this uh, all-male advertising department to respond to the queries. So did they have the answers? No, I mean, that's part of what's so weird is they'd write back responses, but they'd have to ask the female staff who worked there for answers. And because none of them felt comfortable writing their names, they uh, they invented this woman, Betty Crocker. Wow. So so Betty Crocker became sort of like the Dear Abby of cooking problems. Exactly. And, and so according to the Chicago Tribune, 
quote, uh, before Betty Crocker was synonymous with boxed cake mix and canned frosting, she was a kitchen confidant and a maternal and guiding presence in kitchens across America. She was the woman people could trust with their most frustrating kitchen woes. And as that relationship built up from 1921 to 1950, people really came to trust her. So everyone just accepted she was real. Yeah, I mean, it was more than that. So, so you have to remember that this book outsold the Bible. And that's partially because it really spoke to housewives. So women used to make trips to the flour mill just to try to meet and thank her. And while the croquettes, and that's what these uh, women who worked the, the company called themselves, when they couldn't talk around why Betty wasn't in that day, there was just this box of tissues ready for the weeping that would result. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I know. So traumatic. It's like learning that pro wrestling isn't real. <laughs> I mean, what can you trust here? But, but, but the cookbook, was, was it any good? Yeah, I mean, the advice was practical and the recipes were reliable. And it, it apparently helped standardize more things in the kitchen, like the size of oven trays and pans. But the real value in the book seemed to be in how Betty Crocker spoke to women. And the book understood the tremendous burden on housewives. And I, I'm going to quote the Tribune here again, but this is some of what's in the cookbook. Quote, she dispensed good cheer and sympathy. When the cook needed what Betty termed special helps, Betty suggested she might try. And then this is quoting Betty. A few minutes rest on the kitchen floor, harboring pleasant thoughts, pursuing a hobby, wearing comfortable shoes, <laughs> alternating sitting and standing tasks, and taking time to notice humorous incidents, such as the kitten getting stuck in a tree, all to narrate at dinner time. I mean, that all sounds so quaint and, <laughs> and kind of ridiculous at the same time. But, you know, but clearly cooking and maintaining a house is frustrating. And it mm -hmm. must have been nice, you know, to get that reminder that you're not alone in these struggles. Definitely. And, and people must have needed it. I mean, 65 million books. Yeah, that's a crazy number. But, but why don't we take a quick break and then chat briefly about a few more important books? Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. So, Mango, there are obviously two big books that we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, that's right. Joy of Cooking and Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Well, and like we said before, both of these books could be their own show. And in fact, if you want to learn more about Julia Child, you can check out our sister show, Food Stuff. And they just did an episode on her not so long ago. And, you know, then you got The Joy of Cooking. And that book has gone through so many editions and is definitely the best known American cookbook. But let's just do the quick version. Yeah. So the story's incredible. 
1929, you know, the stock market crashed and Irma Rombauer, who's the woman who wrote the book, uh, her husband had been depressed on and off, but the crash just ruined him and, and he took his own life. But Irma decided to pour all of her efforts into a cookbook. And the truth is, she wasn't that great a cook, but she was this incredible hostess and she could really pull a party together really quickly. And her book kind of reads like the flip side of the Betty Crocker book, where everyone's trying to be the perfect housewife. I mean, Irma narrates her book from, like, imperfection. Hmm. She cared more about providing cocktail recipes that loosened the tongue than about <laughs> any of the fancy spreads. And she advises to serve the drinks the sooner the better. And when she does talk about stirring things like soups for an hour, she acknowledges no real person has that sort of time. So she comes across as this wonderful, practical German Midwestern woman who just loves life. And yeah. There's real joy in the joy of cooking. It's real. And and she used all her money to publish this slim volume. And as the volumes expanded, it kept pace with the times. So there's things like how to cook a squirrel in leaner times to how to make granola or lemonade recipes for 100 people. Oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, there are people who love certain volumes that her daughter made maybe versus her originals. And camps who think certain editions are soulless versus those that have Irma's true spirit. And I guess what struck me is is how vocal the fans are about these mm -hmm. certain editions. But why don't we talk quickly about Julia Child, too, because mastering the art was definitely also a very big deal. But, but why was it so revolutionary? Well, basically, it brought French cuisine to America. I mean, French cuisine had been unapproachable, and it was the fanciest food out there. But I didn't realize her book isn't easy. I mean, the steps are complicated. I, I guess that's a subplot of uh, Julie and Julia, but it was basically the book that pulled the curtain from these French magicians and revealed the tricks to everyday Americans. You know, I, I was watching this uh, American Masters on Jacques Pepin, and uh, he, he's so fascinating. But but the thing that I thought was most interesting was that he actually turned down cooking at the Kennedy White House to take a job at Howard Johnson's, <laughs> the hotel chain. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like, basically, he took a very standard restaurant food and for 10 years worked on improving it at scale you know, to, to make the food as delicious as it could be. Which I guess is akin to when top chefs work with like airlines to make the food better. Yeah, it's exactly like that. All right, so I, I know we raced through a ton of books and, and we didn't get enough time with any of them, but mm -hmm. it, it really is fascinating how you can look at cookbooks and understand a certain time through them. There was one I was reading about, a 16th century Russian book called Demostroy, and it tells you how to cook turnips, but also discloses the best way to punish wayward servants, which <laughs> seems so strange. But, you know, cookbooks were for the wealthy back then, and, and it really shows that. I know. And, and when you look at books like uh, Cooking Under Rations from World War One, it's really heartbreaking to see meals like brown rice prepared with drippings, if you have them, or stock or like a little salt and pepper. It's it's not that they can't be tasty, but you can just feel the hopelessness of the times in the recipe. But on the other hand, you can look at a book like Cooking with Coolio and his kitchen pimp recipes like finger licking, rib sticking, fall off the bone and into your mouth chicken. Makes me hungry. I know. And you realize we've lived through some pretty outlandish times, too. Right, right. I have <laughs> no idea what future historians are going to learn from that. But you know one thing historians will remember, though, Mango? The PTG fact off? Well, probably not. But <laughs> but either way, let's go back and forth on some great cookbooks. Did you know one of my heroes, Roger Ebert, had a cookbook out? It's called The Pot and How to Use It. And it's basically a guide for writers on how to eat well using meals made in rice cookers. It's kind of a set it and forget it recipe book. 
Um, I mean, until you're hungry, I mean. I did not know that existed. Well, have you heard of the Eat Your Feelings book? Mm-mm. It's subtitled Recipes for Self-Loathing, and, and they're <laughs> very, very specific. So it'll show you how to make everything from uh, worst date ever nutty cheese balls to baby won't stop crying nachos supreme. <laughs> it sounds very cheese forward. It's very cheese heavy. Uh, here's one from another favorite writer of mine, uh, Roald Dahl's Revolting Recipes. You know, it's, it's, it's strange because I, I've read most of Roald Dahl's books, including his kid and adult stories, but I've actually never picked up this cookbook. But according to the Food Network, it features recipes like, quote, an edible crocodile made from a spinach-covered baguette with almond teeth, olive eyes, gherkin toes, and a slice of ham for a tongue. It's like funny revolting. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> is. I was actually going to tell you about the Twinkies cookbook, but instead I think I'm going to go with a different fact. I feel like I need to clinch this fact off. There's one called the Manifold Destiny Cookbook. So I, I don't get it. Is it filled with recipes from that time period or like about recipes gone west? No, no, no. It's way better than that. <laughs> so I, I learned about this from Bon Appetit, and the subtitle is the one, the only guide to cooking on your car engine. <laughs> it's a book made in 1989, but but it's basically about how to use your car and the engine to cook snacks and meals while driving. I what? guess maybe West, but apparently it includes recipes like throughway thighs, you know, so you don't need to pull off at KFC just to satisfy those cravings. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you know how I love those life hacks where you learn to make soup in coffee pots or broil fish in dishwashers. So I'm all about this. You definitely win this week's cookbook challenge. All right. Well, thanks so much. Now, but before we go, I actually wanted to read a letter from uh, from one of our readers named uh, Lauren Packa. She emailed us after hearing the uh, episode that we did on the U.S. postal system. And mm-hmm. you remember the pneumatic tubes that we were talking about yeah, yeah, where yeah. people actually ordered a sandwich and had it sent from one borough of New York to another. And we thought that was so interesting. And so she wrote to us, and this is related to food, which is why I decided to read it here. And she said... Um, I just finished why we don't use rockets to send mail anymore. At one point, you guys mentioned wishing you could get a sandwich through pneumatic tube. And I thought I'd tell you that I have before in Adena, Minnesota. They once had a pneumatic McDonald's drive through. As a matter of fact, on the recipes, they boasted they were the world's only pneumatic McDonald's. (laughs) I looked it up and apparently it closed in 2011. So I'm sorry, guys. No pneumatic sandwiches anymore. I think there's a YouTube video of it, however. An employee stood in a little outbuilding where they also had a soda machine, not a great idea to send through a tube, and took your order. The sandwiches were made in a strip mall nearby and sent to the outbuilding through the tube. Kind of neat. That's amazing. Thanks for the podcast, guys. I'll admit I'm pretty jealous of your job. But that's awesome. So, Lauren Packa, thank you so much for uh, for that note. You guys know we love hearing from you anytime. You can always call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's one eight four four pt genius or hit us up on our Facebook or Twitter. You can also email us part-time genius at howstuffworks.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-time genius is a production of how stuff works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? 
thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.